Welcome to today's June Ask the Expert call. Now, without any further delay, I'd like to introduce today's host, David Molman with Align Technology. David, you now have the floor. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us on today's Ask the Expert webinar, Tackling Complex Cases with Invisalign, presented by Dr. Bart Ivashuk. You will earn two CE hours for attending today's program, and you will receive important instructions on how to obtain your CE certificate at the conclusion of the presentation. Additional, additionally, CE hours will automatically be added to your Invisalign doctor's site account. Please allow two to four weeks for CE hours to appear on your account. Please note you're able to listen to today's program via the webcast, and throughout the webinar, you'll have the opportunity to ask text questions, which our presenter will answer at the conclusion of the presentation. I apologize in advance that we're not able to answer everyone's questions since our time is limited, but we will follow up after the program to answer any outstanding text questions. Today's program will be archived in its entirety on the Education tab of your Invisalign doctor site, where you may also access archived versions of all of our previous Ask the Expert programs anytime for CE hours. It's now my distinct pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Dr. Bart Ivashuk. Dr. Ivashuk is an Invisalign elite provider who enjoys tackling tough, multidisciplinary cases. His interest in this segment of orthodontics peaked while doing his general practice residency at the University of Washington in Seattle. He received his BS from the University of Toronto with a double major in math and physics. Dr. Ivashuk received his dental training at the University of Toronto and his orthodontic certification from the Eastman Dental Center at the University of Rochester. He maintains a private practice in the greater Toronto area and is a local advisor for Invisalign treatment and a member of several American, Canadian, and international professional dental and orthodontic organizations. So without further delay, I'm going to turn the program over to Dr. Bart Ivashuk. Dr. Ivashuk, you now have the floor. Thank you, David, and uh, thanks everyone for coming and joining me uh, to chat about complex cases. Uh, I know it's a long weekend here in Canada for Canada Day and uh, in the U.S. for July the 4th, so uh, I uh, really appreciate you tuning in in anticipation of the long weekend. Uh, I hope this is really worth your while. Um, I was asked to do this presentation uh, a few months ago, and I really uh, struggled sort of breaking down what it is that we can do for complex cases because, quite honestly, I hope this goes over really, really well and we can turn this one-hour seminar into uh, an immersive one-week uh, meeting down in Costa Rica where we can really dive, deep much, uh, dive much deeper into these cases. Uh, but I did want to go over uh, sort of how I think about these cases, how I sort of break them down um, to, to resolve them and to utilize aligners to their full potential. Uh, I do have to give you a bit of a disclaimer. Uh, all these opinions are my own. It's not aligned. Um, so let's dive in. So really when we look at complex issues, the complexity is usually developed by having a number of connecting parts. So really from that perspective, most orthodontic issues end up having a multiple uh, components that com comprise the overall complexity. And I think for me, um, this really allows me to take really complex problems and simplify them by really narrowing them down and breaking them down systematically into smaller and smaller and smaller components. Um, because the, the simpler ones usually have a very reliable solution um, and it's uh, much easier for me to manage these cases in little chunks rather than look at the overwhelming big problem. Um, the other reason why I sort of try to do it that way is um, there is a tendency to, 
it's really easy to focus just on that and neglect the fact that we have to deal with a deep overbite at the same time. Um, so I do try to systematically break this down and, and look at the smaller components, and that way hopefully I don't miss anything and don't just get mesmerized by uh, what I perceive to be the most complex uh, part of the overall malocclusion. So I sort of try to break it down into these five components. Uh, so this is sort of how I think about whenever I come across a case that uh, is a little bit different, it's atypical, um, and I really utilize ClinCheck to uh, look at these components. Uh, it's the tooth size analysis, which is a wonderful component to have, especially for any pre-prosthetic type treatment. It's something that used to be very cumbersome to do with plaster and, uh, uh, and bola gauges, whereas now it's wonderful. It's all built into the ClinCheck. ClinCheck allows me to look at a number of different treatment options. Uh, because a lot of these patients can benefit from a lot of different approaches. Uh, so I couldn't do that before, again, with brackets and wires and plaster, uh, but with ClinCheck, I can do that very readily. Uh, we'll talk about dividing and conquering. Uh, that basically means breaking down different components of the malocclusion so you're not overwhelmed and uh, um, looking at the whole complexity of the case. You can sort of address the simpler issues one at a time. I do anticipate auxiliaries and try to utilize them if I need them. I don't consider myself an Invisalign odontist. I do consider myself an orthodontist. So if I see something that I can do simpler or uh, more efficiently with auxiliaries versus aligners, or sometimes marry them together, and we'll talk about that, and get the best of both worlds, I have no qualms about doing that. Uh, and then we'll discuss a little bit of a concept that I would uh, sort of name selective anchorage. Uh, and that is to really just allow different movements at different stages uh, and not always try to do everything all at once. So we're going to go uh, through five cases today and try to uh, uh, highlight some of these features in ClinCheck and uh, how uh, uh, these can be utilized uh, for your cases. So we'll start off with one that's the simplest, it's tooth size analysis. Uh, and this lady presented to my office uh, because she just recently lost the uh, upper left uh, bicuspid. Uh, it was endodontically treated and eventually had a fracture, and the fracture was subosseous, so she lost the tooth. And as is very common in these heavily restored dentitions, the restoration that was there uh, was already quite a bit smaller than the edentulate site, these MODs. Uh, it just get narrower and narrower and narrower. Uh, and now she requires an implant, uh, but obviously there's not enough space to place an implant. Uh, so she was presented to my clinic to basically create space uh, to allow us to do an implant. And uh, I, uh, I love utilizing aligners for distalization. It's an absolutely fantastic orthodontic tool. But more importantly, once you get into these pre-prosthetic cases where you have a four-unit bridge on the upper incisors, I'm not even sure how I could tackle that with brackets and wires. I certainly don't want to be bonding brackets to porcelain. And even if I could, I already have an established arch form because of this bridge. So it's really challenging to try to do this with uh, any sort of uh, um, wire. Um, because aligners are customized to our patients, it makes this process very, very simple. Now, she also presented with severe crowding in the lower arch, and uh, we decided that we're going to end up extracting a lower right first bicuspid, 
in order to sort of deal with the uh, malalignment of the lower dentition, might as well take care of it at the same time. Aratographs are fairly unremarkable, except for the fact that you can see that uh, her upper left molars are tipped mesially, which will make it a little bit easier for us to open up that edentulous site. So here's our ClinCheck, okay? Um, and uh, we're going to focus on a couple of things here. Uh, you know, obviously, we want to have some sequential distalization. And again, I think aligners just do an incredible job of that. It's my favorite distalizing appliance. You do always have to make sure that you have uh, a precision uh, cutout so that you can back it up with elastic. The aligner distalizes the teeth, but the elastic ensures that you have appropriate anchorage. Um, and then utilizing the tooth size analysis uh, that's in the Bolton table allows me to know exactly what the size of that upper left bicuspid should be. Um, in the lower right-hand side, where we're going to do the extraction, when I have these favorable uh, cuspids that are tipped, I never upright them and translate them. I always lead with the root and do the uprighting at the very end. Uh, the standard default tends to be for them to tip upwards right away, but I find that it's difficult to control them that way. I also look at my uh, tooth movement assessment to anticipate what's going to be difficult to do. Uh, and here you'll notice that it's the uh, lower right lateral that will require a little bit of finessing at the end because uh, it has quite a lot of root movement. Um, so the ClinCheck is fairly straightforward. The only thing i got to make sure here is that I uh, utilize some elastics to obtain the distalization, uh, and I'm leading with the root and only uprighting my tipped teeth at the very end rather than uprighting them initially and then translating. So we'll look at her progress. Uh, this is pretty much the end of her upper aligners. Um, I ended up just uh, having her wear elastics and get distalization. So it's quite remarkable that we can distalize three molars and do this very predictably. Uh, for me, the most wonderful thing is, is that if the aligner fits, I know exactly how large that space is. I don't even measure them anymore. I usually tell the technician, uh, just make the space on the upper left the same size as the tooth on the upper right. Um, I don't have to do the bola gauges. Um, you know, if the aligner fits, I know what size it is. And it's a wonderful way to communicate with uh, the general dentist or the surgeon who's going to be taking over. And I don't have to put up with the cumbersome space opening and space closure that we do with brackets and wires, where we tend to do an open coil, we get too much space, and we do power chain, we get too little space, and go back and forth, back and forth. It's basically, if the aligner fits, it's exactly what we need it to be. Uh, you can see in the lower arch, we're progressing quite well, but notice that my lower right cuspid clinically already is upright, uh, even though on the clinic it should have still had quite a bit of distal root tip. So I do find, because the liners are much softer than a stainless steel wire that we would typically do this on, um, they do upright more readily, even though you don't see that in your clinic, which is one of the reasons why I try to make my uprighting at the very end rather than initially, uh, because once you sort of upright it and you are only relying on translation, it makes it much more difficult uh, to then keep the uh, uh, root upright and parallelism. So here we're ready for, uh, for an implant placement. Again, with aligners, it's wonderful. Uh, you can place the implant, just remove the align during the time of the surgery, and then you can put it right back on. Very often for these cases, because their pontic sites are uh, changing often, 
Uh, I have my patients displace orthodontic rope wax in the edentulous sites. It saves me from having the thick resin or anything else in there. Uh, it looks quite reasonable. Uh, it's not the most aesthetic thing in the world, but I've done this hundreds of times, and most people don't object to it. It's nice and hygienic. Uh, immediately after the uh, surgery, she can just put in a little bit less orthodontic rope wax to make sure it doesn't impinge on the tissue, and life hasn't changed at all. So at this stage, uh, we're going to uh, order a little bit of refinement, just to detail things. Uh, so here's a refinement clincheck. My refinement clincheck's are usually geared towards just individual tooth movement. Most of the major movements should have been completed, and the occlusal, um, uh, inter-arch occlusal issue should have been resolved. So you see here, we're just doing a little arch coordination, a little bit more root parallelism at the extraction site. And that uh, lower right uh, lateral incisor, which had a lot of root angulation, and we didn't have an opportunity to upright it all the way initially. Uh, now we end up adding an attachment to it and just completing it. So I don't always try to do everything at once. Um, I have no problems breaking up my uh, clinchecks and my treatment plans into smaller uh, sections. Um, and that way I uh, can hopefully make each one a little bit simpler. Uh, most of these patients over the years, uh, I have been switching aligners uh, uh, weekly, um, so it doesn't actually take that long to do. So this is how she shows up on the day of insertion of her refinement aligner. So she woke up in the morning, decided to have breakfast, and during breakfast, her bridge fractured and fell out. So now we end up having a really big problem. How do we deal with this? Uh, with brackets and wires, it's essentially impossible. Uh, we would be making some sort of a flipper, and if we made some sort of a flipper, it would need ball clasps or atom clasps in the molar area uh, to lock it into place. If we do that, then we can't correct the uh, buckle root torque that we needed in the buckle segments to get this to settle in nicely. So we would have to accept some sort of a, a compromised end result while we're contending uh, with this prosthetic problem. But with aligners, this to me isn't a problem at all. I just simply clean it out, fill it with some composites, and stick it right back into the aligner. And I've done this a number of times, even in situations where we anticipated extracting teeth, what we would do is have them extracted, cut the crown off uh, away from the root, and just seat the crown back into the aligner. Um, the patient's already used to it. She knows how to wear a liner, uh, and it's very simple to just proceed in the same fashion as she did earlier to wear aligners and continue to have refinement of her malocclusion and dental alignment. The only difference ends up being is now we need to place uh, um, implants in the anterior maxilla to replace the teeth that were fractured, and they are non-restorable. Uh, but again, we don't require any additional prosthetics or any changes to our treatment plan because we can continue to simply adjust the bridge, make sure it's not loaded on the tissue, and continue to wear aligners while we continue to detail her malocclusion. So these are just her refinement aligners, and there's a little bit of detailing in the lower arch. Um, and I did bond a couple of buttons in the uh, posterior right because I just was having a bit of trouble settling in that... Uh, upper molar is quite heavily restored, so this was just for a little bit of uh, elastic wear to make sure that it settles in really nicely. 
And then this is the final result. She ended up having her uh, restorations done and supported by the implant. You can see she finished with a nice occlusion. Uh, the only funny thing is, is that uh, the problem that she originally presented for, which was to uh, replace the upper left uh, bicuspid, is still not addressed. The implant is buried because of financial constraints, and we had to address the anterior first. So you can see from start to end, uh, I think this would have been quite a complex case to uh, address utilizing brackets and wire. Uh, but with Invisalign, it's, uh, it's really, really simple to have this uh, process, uh, especially in light of the fact that aligners can function so well as interim prosthetics. All right, so let's move on and try to look at other things that we can do. So one of the things that I love about ClinCheck is to me, ClinCheck is really a study model of the initial situation that I'm presented with, the final outcome, but it's dynamic. I can change it intermediately. So it's not like a plaster wax up where all I have is the beginning, the end, and nothing in between. So it's a wonderful diagnostic and treatment planning tool that I think is actually underutilized. So this patient is basically a Monday morning orthodontic emergency consult. And we don't get those very often, and when you do, you know something significant happens. So this fellow shows up uh, at my office first thing Monday morning, because on Sunday he was out playing soccer, got an elbow to the face, which evolves the upper right lateral incisor, uh, fractured the upper left central incisor below the bone line, so it's no longer restorable, uh, and subluxated the upper left uh, lateral incisor. And uh, these patients, they might have not considered orthodontic treatment in the past, but now they essentially don't have an option to do, uh, to ignore the orthodontic problem, uh, because in their current state of occlusion, they are really non-restorable. There's nothing that the dentist can do. So as soon as he presented to the dentist, the dentist just said them my way and said, you know, what can you do here to make this restorable? Now, when they arrive, obviously, they're in distress. Uh, so one of the first things we do, and, and I've done this a number of times now, is we just take an alginate impression of the upper arch, um, do a, basically a vacuform Essex retainer, and I just add a little pontic at the area where the tooth is missing stick some wax in it, it takes us maybe a half hour. Uh, during that half hour, we obtain their records and obtain an iTero scan, uh, or back in the day, a, a PBS impression. And within about half hour, we have all the necessary records that I need for my treatment planning, and we can provide them with an Essex retainer that has a Pontic in it, which now means they can wear it, uh, they can feel more comfortable, like they're not missing teeth in the interior of their uh, smile. Um, and uh, I basically tell them this is a training aligner. We're going to straighten out your teeth using something called Invisalign, not braces. Uh, and it'll feel very similar to this, except it's going to be able to move your teeth, whereas this one is just holding them in place. Okay. And um, I think if you look at this case right now, there's a number of issues that we have to contend with. But what are our treatment options? Um, I'm pretty certain that if we gathered 10 orthodontists together and looked at this, we could probably come up with 15 treatment plans, and it would all be viable. So how do you determine which is the appropriate one for your patient, which one do you want to utilize, and how do you communicate that with your, uh, with your patient? 
And really, when they walk in on this sort of emergency consult, I don't have the time to sit and analyze and figure out every last nuance of it. All I tell them is, you know what? Here's your retainer. Why don't we meet in about two weeks, and we'll go through a few different treatment options of how we can resolve this for you, and we'll come up with the most appropriate plan. That'll also give me an opportunity to reach out to the general dentist to get their input of what else is going on. Um, so that's what we decide to do. So really, my first clin check usually ends up being, you don't have to spend too much time on this. Just submit it and say, please align. Uh, there's not much more that you have to do. It just gives you a starting point and gets the process going. It gives you all your tooth size discrepancy, gives you uh, uh, the sizes of the teeth that allows for planning for prosthetics, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a wonderful tool to sort of get started. So here's the initial check, and it really is nothing uh, magical. All I did is submit it and say, don't make any AP changes. Just align upper, align lower, and give me context that's the two missing teeth. So now I know that the one side is a lower class two, the other side is a lower class three. Obviously, I had a deep bite to begin with. I have a pretty good idea now how large the uh, uh, pontics have to be. Can I uh, get implants that are small enough, for example, to accommodate that uh, upper right lateral incisor because they're very small? And it starts the conversation with the general, general dentist, you know, how are we going to address this? More importantly, it allows me to now send this back to my technician and start working on different treatment plans because, again, there's a lot of ways that we could address this. I'm sure some of you are sitting there and thinking, I would do this or I would do that, you know, because there's so many, uh, so many avenues that we can take here. So um, I tried for surgical plans, and uh, here we decided to take out a lower bicuspid. Uh, align the lower arch, uh, decompensate the upper one, plan for two implants, and then a mandibular advancement because he is a little retrognathic. So I don't think it's uh, the most ideal plan, at least not for me, but it's a viable one and it allows me to sort of test drive it and see what it looks like. I also tried another plan, you know, with extractions. And here we decided to extract two upper bicuspids and one lower uh, left bicuspid to see if we can use that space to create larger pontics um, at the edentulous site to basically try to get more space to allow us to get uh, implants done that are more restorable. Because upper right lateral incisor that's 5.5 millimeters wide is pretty challenging to restore. Um, but the decision was kind of made for me because when the patient went back to have the root removed of the upper left central incisor, upon extraction of that root, it was also noted that he had a fracture of the buccal plate, uh, and a big chunk of it came out during the extraction. Uh, so now we got into an issue where, uh, in order to restore with an implant the upper left central incisor, we would now start uh, getting into... Uh, uh, bone grafting, uh, and all these other issues that come along uh, with uh, lack of supportive osseous structure. So I scratched my head and thought maybe I can do a different plan. So I sort of came up with this one where I decided to uh, do a substitution type case. I uh, extracted the lower bicuspid on the lower left uh, to resolve the crowding, 
but decided to do a, a sort of a, a substitution case up on top where my cuspids became my laterals. Uh, and I wanted to utilize the upper left lateral incisor basically to remodel the bone at that site. Um, it was uh, luxated during his injury, so we weren't certain if it's going to survive or not. Uh, but this was sort of addressing it, saying, hey, if we can get a little bit of bone remodeling in this area, then maybe we can at least eliminate the need for a bone graft and just stick with a straightforward implant. So that's sort of the plan we decided to pursue. Um, and I confirmed this with the general dentist, you know, can we make this restorable? And everybody thought that that was a reasonable plan, including the patient, which now felt that he didn't uh, really need any more teeth removed except for the lower left one, which was uh, uh, necessary for uh, uh, dealing with the crowding. Uh, and in the upper arch, we didn't have to worry about bone grafting, implants, anything else. We simply had a restoration to do on the upper left lateral incisor, knowing that it had ground, uh, guarded prognosis. So here we are utilizing our ClinCheck. Uh, and you can see things are coming along nicely. Uh, we're getting alignment on the lower arch. My uh, Cuspid on the lower left is uh, lagging behind a little bit. I wish I had a bit more of a, a, a gable bend in that area, but not too bad overall. Uh, the upper arch is coming along nicely. You can see on the upper occlusal photo how big of a bony defect there is on that upper left central incisor. There's essentially no buckle plate. So the lateral incisor is moving through cortical bone and it's sort of trekking along. Not the best, but uh, uh, you know, enough that it's staying vital uh, and that uh, we're getting nice, healthy tissue now. It's not tracking the best, so we are going to now uh, uh, obtain a uh, mid-course correction to try to help out. We didn't lose the upper uh, left lateral incisor, so we know we can continue with this plan. So uh, just tidying it up a little bit. Uh, same plan. Uh, but just adding a little bit more of a virtual gable bend, uh, and I probably should have done even more than that. Um, and uh, in the uh, other arch, just uh, add a little bit of class to elastics, continue to uh, resolve the deep overbite, which I find you always have to overdo a little bit more in a ClinCheck than clinically. Uh, and then I got this new nice optimized attachment, which actually tracked really well up until the time when the uh, power ridge uh, ended up auto-populating on my upper uh, central right incisor. Um, so I've learned over the years that, um, uh, you know, I don't mind optimized attachments at all, uh, but when you have a very small tooth, like a lateral incisor with a small optimized attachment uh, and a power ridge next to it, it often ends up letting go of the uh, optimized attachment. At least that's been my experience. So if I had to do this all over again, I, I would have probably just removed the power ridge and maybe even slowed down the movement. I mean, after all, this is not a typical case. This is not an average tooth movement through average bone. So who knows exactly how well it would have worked out otherwise. But we managed to get through it. I needed a little bit of a power arm at the end to upright the root a little bit more because it was lagging behind. But we pretty much managed to get everything else sorted out. We got the lower arch lined up and placed some retainers. We got the upper arch lined up. We got good uh, uh, cusp to foster relationships in our buckle segments. 
Uh, and we managed to rebuild quite a lot of the uh, alveolus at the uh, upper left central incisor and maintain the vitality of that lateral. I mean, it still has a questionable prognosis long-term, but at least now this is becoming a case that is restorable because we can provide an implant or we can do a four-unit bridge from the cuspids. There's a lot of options available here to us. This is what the final restorations ended up looking like. Uh, it's a couple of crowns. And uh, the patient elected not to reshape or do anything with the cuspids. Uh, just flatten the cuspids a tiny little bit. Uh, considering where he started out when I met him and when he finished off, I think it's a very, very reasonable uh, plan. Uh, and again, I've utilized here at ClinCheck to give me a lot of different options, a lot of different scenarios, and plan uh, for the necessary tooth size that I needed to finish this uh, successfully. So let's continue and dive into uh, divide and conquer. So when it comes to things like divide and conquer, uh, I really uh, look at different components of malocclusion. Uh, for any of you that have had a chance to watch my uh, uh, presentation at the last summit, it's called uh, an ace up your sleeve. Uh, I really do uh, divide up my cases into sort of vertical AP transverse issues um, and don't always necessarily try to resolve everything all at once um, and not necessarily by one means possible. Sometimes you need other things uh, incorporated into your overall orthodontic treatment plan uh, to make this work. So I wanted to share with you uh, a surgical case because uh, we often talk about Invisalign and its limitations and, and how you can utilize it for surgical patients. And I think there's been quite a, a lot of progress in this area over the years. Uh, at the summit, we're starting to see more and more presentations of how orthognathic surgery can be done with Invisalign patients. Uh, there's been examples of what can be done with utilizing aligners and just buttons on some teeth. Uh, there's been examples of utilizing pads uh, to settle in the occlusion. Um, but the stumbling block ends up being one, uh, the surgeons that are under, that are performing the, the treatment, obviously they have uh, a lot more to lose if something goes astray than we do. Uh, so at least in my hometown, I'm still getting a lot of reluctance in trying to do a lot of these cases um, with, uh, with just the liners and buttons. But more importantly, uh, the bigger the osteotomies become, the more challenging it really becomes to utilize a liner. Uh, and I'm not aware of anybody that has been able to uh, do uh, segmental osteotomies uh, with um, uh, aligners. So this young lady is actually a sister of a brother that I already treated with orthognathic surgery. There's a very strong genetic component to this family, so we knew she was going to be a surgical case. So we let her fully grow. Uh, I did expand her when she was younger because with these class three cases, you know they always end up having a transverse issue. And even after all the expansion as she continued to grow and stay in retainers, we're still a little shy. So we're going to try to work her up for orthodontic surgery, and uh, she's really not dying to have uh, braces like her brother did, uh, you know, probably seven years earlier. Uh, she's heard of Invisalign and really wanted to utilize Invisalign. 
Uh, and I certainly don't want to be restricted to offering Invisalign to any of my patients. I just tell them we might have to utilize other means than just aligners to get some parts of your malocclusion resolved, uh, but hopefully as little as possible. So let's talk about her a little bit. Here's her radiograph. You can see she's quite a substantial class three. Uh, I don't really think I had any other options outside of orthognathic surgery to, to get that fully resolved. Um, but other than that, her radiographs are unremarkable. We've had the wisdom teeth removed a uh, long, long time ago. Uh, so she's ready for orthognathic surgery at any point in time. We're basically waiting for skeletal maturation. So her ClinCheck is actually fairly straightforward. Uh, and you know with aligners, I can certainly align all the teeth. I can certainly obtain my vertical alignment, so leveling of my arches. Um, it's a great treatment planning tool, again, because I can use the elastic jump to measure how big of an AP change this is and communicate that with the oral surgeon so we can start making decisions. Is this going to be a single-jaw osteotomy? Is it going to be a two-jaw osteotomy? So the biggest challenge that we had was really the transverse dimensions because I still needed to do quite a bit of arch development. Uh, we're only about shy two millimeters in the molars, but two millimeters at the molars can be quite challenging at skeletal maturation. Uh, but because we wanted to utilize aligners, uh, you know, I offered to do this, and we just said we're going to back it up with a cross-arch elastic. So I set myself up to just bond some buttons in the lower buckle segments and on the lingual of the upper uh, bicuspids and just utilize cross-arch elastics during her aligner wear. So our clinch is not terribly complex or terribly exciting. Uh, it was just designed to basically address certain parts of her malocclusion, the alignment, the leveling. The AP change was really a decompensation because we know surgically she's going to have full AP correction. And the only one that was questionable is how do we deal with the transverse, okay? So that's how I'm sort of breaking down this problem. Uh, the transverse issue can be either resolved by a SARPI, and we really didn't want to do that. She already had an expander at a younger age, um, and uh, we weren't that far off. We're only a couple of millimeters shy, so we thought, you know, if we get lucky, maybe we can even get it coordinated uh, with the cross-arch elastic. And if we didn't, for a small amount of transverse discrepancy, we can always look at the possibility of doing the maxillary osteotomy in two pieces rather than a single piece. So that's sort of where we're at. That's our unknown, and that's where we're using some auxiliaries with elastics, and we'll reevaluate the case as we line things up. So this is where she is, about 16 months of aligner wear. I do find that I have to slow down the aligner changes in some of these cases where you have to decompensate them. Uh, because the musculature is just so strong, especially the procline, the lower incisors, the lower lip is always driving them lingual. Um, so it requires a little bit more time. Still not unreasonable uh, for a uh, you know, fairly severe class three. 16 months to coordinate and decompensate, I don't think is an unreasonable amount of time. There was no refinement required, nothing else, just straightforward changing aligners and weighing cross-arch elastics. And when we got to this stage, we basically uh, took some models, tried to fit them together, 
and notice that we were still tight transversely. We still needed to address the transverse issue. The aligners didn't give us enough coordination or the elastics. And the exact same thing would have happened with wires. Uh, this is really a skeletal problem, not a dental problem. So I don't fault the aligners here at all. This was just part of our overall treatment plan. So what can we do now? Well, uh, I've been doing orthognathic surgery with aligners for years, um, even before buttons and elastics, because sometimes when we had to do it, we just ended up lining things up and then tell our patients, you're either going to need arch bars uh, to undergo orthognathic surgery or braces. And it's not maybe what the future holds, and, and hopefully we'll get better with this, but it's not the end of the world if we're getting into very complex osteotomies. So arch bars are not the nicest thing for our patients, and I want my patients to like me. Uh, so rather than arch bars, what we did is uh, just do some indirect bonding of some inexpensive brackets. And you can set them up so they're all in line. Uh, and I place a stainless steel wire that's coordinated. Um, I've done this many times before. We usually place the wire in the brackets about a month before uh, the planned surgical date. That's because no matter how good I am with bonding my brackets and no matter how good I am with coordinating the wires, there's always a little bit of play. So I want to make sure that when she gets her surgical split made, uh, it'll be absolutely passive. And then I usually see them a day or two before surgery, and we just add all the surgical hooks that crimp on at the time. Uh, so basically spends about four weeks in brackets and wires uh, pre-surgically to make sure everything is done properly. The treatment plan ended up being two-piece maxillary advancement. Uh, and because there was uh, some concern uh, for the um, position of the uh, nerve in the mandible, uh, rather than doing a sagittal split, uh, it was decided that uh, a vertical ramus osteotomy is going to be performed in the mandible, uh, which then uh, basically sealed the fate for us because at that point in time, you have to be an intramaxillary fixation with a splint. Um, so outside of uh, doing plates that are splinted together, I don't think we really had any other option outside of brackets and wires, arch bars, uh, or anything like that. I don't think uh, anybody would be able to do this with just aligners and buttons. It just starts to be way too complex. But this is what she looked like four weeks post-surgically. You can see she's in intermaxillary fixation. She's got her splint in place. I always like to check up on them in about four weeks after surgery uh, just to see if anything broke, if anything's uh, off, uh, if we have to anticipate any uh, changes in the following appointment. But she looks great, and she's having nice facial changes. Certainly softened her up, looks a lot more feminine. Um, and no other issues, really. So another four weeks until she comes back. This is where she is at eight weeks post-surgically. And at this point, we scheduled her to basically remove her brackets uh, and order some detailing aligners. Uh, to just settle in her buccal segment and, and do a little bit of finessing of any teeth that aren't perfectly straight. Um, in the future, um, now that we uh, have scanning technology, I think if you really need to scan their teeth pre-surgically, but don't scan their bite registration uh, and utilize that immediately after surgery to order your aligners, that way there's no lag time. But under this situation, I knew if I was to... Um, uh, 
uh, order some aligners for her, it would take approximately four weeks for them to come in, and then she would probably need maybe two months of aligners just to settle this last little bit in. And I always give my patients the option, I'm happy to order more aligners for you, but you probably know that at uh, this stage, most patients just want to be done. Uh, they don't really want to uh, forego uh, um, uh, any uh, treatment options that would allow them to be done sooner. Uh, so the other option always ends up being is I can put in a little detailing wire for you, wear some rubber bands, and we can take everything off in about a month and you're done. Um, and that's what she elected. And uh, this is what she's like uh, about four weeks later. So this is a total of 12 weeks post-surgically where we place her permanent retainers uh, and uh, remove all the brackets, clean her up. Um, I think it worked out really nicely. You can see her uh, pre-surgical state, her decompensation state, and then her final uh, occlusion, her total time in brackets and wires, which I consider to be an auxiliary to uh, aligners, was a total of four months. So 20 months for orthognathic surgery, two-piece maxilla, and mandible reduction, I don't think is an unreasonable amount of time. Um, and certainly uh, four months in braces is not an unreasonable amount of time, but I do hope that in the future we will have even better uh, modalities that will allow us to uh, bypass uh, uh, braces entirely. Uh, but until my surgical colleagues feel perfectly uh, uh, safe and confident in doing that, you know, this is how I can uh, proceed to do very complex osteotomies without necessarily uh, declining aligner therapy to my patient. This is where she started out. You can see she was quite masculine looking uh, and quite a bit softer uh, after the orthognathic surgery. Uh, nice end result. Very, very happy with it. So that's how we divide and conquer. Uh, just look at different parts of your malocclusion, and some of them might be resolvable by aligners, but some of them may not be. Uh, and if they're not be, then what auxiliaries do you need in order to make it work? So let's take a look at another case here, which is going to give us a similar sort of issue and how we resolve it. So this young lady comes in to see me, and she's quite retrognathic as a class two malocclusion. And really, under normal circumstances, I would have no qualms treating her purely with aligners. Um, you know, it's a little bit of uh, derotation of the upper molars, some class two elastics, uh, hopefully some favorable growth, and uh, everything should hopefully work out wonderfully. Uh, nowadays, in Canada, we have the mandibular advancement functional uh, appliance feature that's available in aligners. And uh, maybe she would be a great candidate for that as well. So we get uh, hopefully some uh, growth modification and mandibular advancement here as well at the same time. But the complicating factor that I encountered here had to do not so much with her uh, malocclusion, the class two skeletal tendency, but the fact that I had an ankylosed lower left first uh, permanent molar. Um, so the problem became as how do I run class two elastics here? Um, we really wanted to remove uh, the um, ankylosed tooth. The sooner the better, because you can see it's already creating quite a large uh, osseous defect, and we didn't want that to keep progressing any further. Um, we ended up obtaining some uh, um, 3D imaging to really assess it and see what's going on. 
But the decision was the sooner we can remove it, the better to allow this bone to uh, heal up and with her growth, hopefully uh, get some of a uh, resolution here without having uh, to deal long-term with a vertical bony defect. So the challenge I had is if I'm trying to run class two elastics off the uh, second bicuspid, well, that's a really short vector, so it's not really going to work great for me. Uh, alternatively, if I try to run class two elastics of the lower left second molar, it's already severely tipped to the mesial. It's just going to tip way more, so I'm going to make my life much more difficult long term. So what I decided to do is break up my problem into what can be done with aligners and what can't, uh, or at least what is less favorable at this point in time. So I decided to utilize a functional appliance to give me some uh, expansion in the maxilla, so deal with my transverse issue, and AP correction. So I utilized sort of a, a, a Herbst crossbow type appliance, whichever one is your favorite would have worked just fine, but it allowed me to sort of take care of the problem that I had, which is transverse AP, and get a nice class one platform. So you can see her, she still has uh, malalignment of her dentition, uh, she's certainly getting a little bit of a better profile. Uh, I now have class one cuspids bilaterally. So now this is becoming a much simpler, it's no longer a complex uh, uh, case. Uh, and I can tackle this with aligners very easily now because it's just a lot of alignment uh, and sort of settling. But the one problem that I still have is my lower left second molar has gotten even worse. Now it's uh, uh, more severely tipped and I really want to utilize uh, aligners at this point in time to upright it. Uh, which becomes a huge challenge. Again, I don't want that to stop me from utilizing aligner therapy. I just ask myself, what else is it that I need to do in order to make this work? So here's her ClinCheck, and uh, her ClinCheck is fairly unremarkable in most parts because, like I said, it's just a little bit of arch development and then straightening, uh, so nothing to get excited about. But in the lower arch, what I chose to do is uh, set myself up for a little auxiliary to upright that molar, and I will show it to you what it looks like and how it, uh, how it works. Um, and the concept behind that is really, in order to move teeth, we need a, a vector. So a vector really consists of a force and a direction, and most of the time our aligners do both. They provide direction of tooth movement, and they exert a force on a tooth to get it to move. But it doesn't mean that we always have to do that. So here I have some optimized cutouts uh, so that I will use a little segmental wire here to upright this tooth. And it's really a best of both worlds because if I try doing this with just brackets and wires, what happens is the molar ends up extruding, becomes uh, a stuck in traumatic occlusion, and it typically tips towards the lingual. Uh, because the cortical plate on the buckle of the mandible is so much harder than on the lingual. So it's a very difficult movement to do with brackets and wires because it's extremely difficult to control direction. It's simple to exert the force because certainly wires can do that, but direction ends up being the challenge. Similarly here, with aligners, the challenge becomes in exerting the force because we don't have much tooth mass to catch onto. Um, 
we could have tried maybe twin attachments, maybe placing them both on the buccal and the lingual, but no matter what, it's just a difficult thing to express with aligners right now. Um, but aligners are fantastic at providing direction. So I have brackets and wires, which do a great job of providing force, but poor at direction. And then I have aligners, which in this case are fantastic at providing direction, but struggle with force. Can we combine them both to get best of both worlds? So I've done this a number of times now uh, because I do end up seeing so many pre-prosthetic patients and I utilize aligners. And it's a very common problem uh, to deal with uh, lower molars that have tipped uh, mesial over the years of uh, uh, being unsupported next to an edentulous site. So it's a little um, upgrading spring. It's very simple to make. Uh, you can look up in your uh, profit uh, textbook. It's in the last chapter. Uh, and basically what it is uh, is a little bit of a supporting uh, arch wire on my bicuspids, which provides the uh, anchorage, uh, and then a TMA spring, which is designed to upright the molar. Uh, the aligner is locked in onto the bicuspid uh, with a couple of attachments. So now what I'm getting is with brackets and wires, that lower molar would be moving lingual and extruding. Well, the aligner is preventing it from doing that and actually only allows it a certain direction. You can see that that aligner doesn't fit perfect right now. That's okay. The only path that molar can go in is into the aligner eventually it'll find its way and get itself seated. Similarly, with brackets and wires, the biggest challenge is, is that you get all the side effects of uprighting that molar exerted on the bicuspid. So they often intrude and tip uh, and uh, get blown out buckly. Well, now my aligner is sort of anchoring them and not allowing them to move anywhere. Uh, there is fancy omega loops and compensating loops you can make in your arch wire to try to minimize that, but this is just so much simpler and there's nothing really to worry about. Just let the two system work in tandem. And this is where she finished up. You can see she got great alignment using her aligners. She got uh, favorable profile changes with her functional appliance, uh, nice buckle segments. And uh, what you want to see is probably the radiograph of what the molar looks like. Um, and you can see initial presentation, post-functional appliance, and post-aligners. And uh, we started out with a very tipped molar. We uprighted it with the little uprighting spring. And then here is the final one, just adding a, a permanent retainer in that site until she gets to be old enough where she can get an implant. Unfortunately, most of that vertical bony defect that she had at the ankylosis site has resolved, so she's a very good candidate at this point in time uh, to obtain a uh, implant long-term. So it's a nice way of addressing these issues. And again, I didn't have to be uh, forced to do everything with aligners. Sometimes the tandem of the two systems works just so much nicer in harmony. So the last thing I want to talk to you about is uh, looking at being selective with your anchorage. And what I mean by that, as we will discuss, is I, I don't always try to do everything in my first set of aligners because it becomes way too cumbersome and it's uh, almost impossible to predict exactly what's going to happen uh, for some of these patients. So I was told at one point in my career that aligners cannot correct crossbites and that was one of the limitations that they had. 
So here's a young fellow uh, which actually only has one tooth in uh, proper occlusion, and that's the upper left central incisor, and only half of it is actually in proper occlusion. Every single other tooth in the entire arch is in a crossbite. Um, so I looked at this and uh, asked myself, can I do this with, my, with aligners? And I'll admit to you, it's not the first one that I treated, so I'm pretty confident I now can, uh, especially when it's for dental compensation, obviously not for skeletal issues. Um, but I have no qualms setting this up to deal with uh, the smell occlusion with aligners, but I'm not going to pay attention and scrutinize uh, the movement of the upper left lateral incisor and whether my ClinCheck is absolutely perfectly designed for that. I mean, I'd be lucky to get him into some sort of a stable occlusion in the first six months or eight months. What I want to do is just deal with the big issues first. So what I want to do is see if I can get uh, some expansion in the upper arch, see if I can coordinate the arches, see if I can get him into stable occlusion. Everything else doesn't really matter. So this is how we're going to set it up and try to deal with all these other issues. I have over-erupted uh, uh, molars in the um, first quadrant, and we'll try to address that. But again, not everything all at once. We have a tipped molar in the third quadrant. Again, I want to deal with that, but not all at once. Right now, let's just pick the issues that are big here, deal with those first, and set up our anchorage to do that. But this is what I mean by it. This is the way the ClinCheck is designed. So most of it is just unraveling, uh, but I do want to give myself an opportunity to utilize cross-arch elastics. I think that's fairly obvious. So you see I have some cutouts. But what I want you to notice is that my posterior is pretty stable. I'm not doing any expansion in my molars. I'm basically utilizing my molars as anchorage to develop the rest of the arch. Because I don't want to strain the entire aligner, sort of like trying in to put in an arch wire that's just massive. What I want to do is utilize that as anchors. Uh, and then I've provided myself with some, uh, some uh, optimized splits here in my aligners so that I can use cross-arch elastics. Anytime I can utilize features built into the aligners, I prefer that. Uh, overdoing it with buttons and elastics is just less stuff to break. And in the second quadrant, notice that I'm intruding the uh, bicuspid here, but I'm utilizing the cuspid and the uh, molar uh, to give me the anchorage to do that. I can't intrude all the teeth at once. I can only selectively do it. Same thing on the right quadrant. I'm utilizing the cuspid and the last molar, the terminal molar, to intrude the first molar and the two bicuspid because I want to try to level the arch. But if I tried intruding all five of those teeth, nothing would happen. I need anchorage somewhere. I need something stable to get other teeth moving because orthodontics is all about equal and opposite direct uh, reaction. You know, some teeth move uh, against other teeth. So anytime I see ClinChecks when all the teeth move in a, a unison direction, it's just not going to work. Uh, and I have almost a year worth of aligners, which are going to be switched weekly. And again, I don't think that that is on a reasonable amount of time to get this arch development. So I'll show you the progress here. This is how I utilize cross-arch elastics. I did want to have buttons in the, uh, in the upper arch, uh, but I just had some hooks on the lower one, and that's how they engage. You just need attachments uh, 
on the bicuspids to make sure that your aligner doesn't flip off the case. And a lot of this is just arch development, arch development, but notice that my upper molars are staying put. They're not changing transversely. It's just in the anterior. Okay. More development. I had a little bit of problems tracking of the upper right cuspid and uh, the upper um, left lateral incisor. Again, at this point, I really don't care. I just need to get to a better position. And finally, at the end of all the aligners, this is where I arrive. And this is not too bad. This is now starting to look like something I can deal with. Yes, I need some tooth detailing. Um, and yes, now I can look at expanding the posterior of the maxilla, but I got a much more stable frame to work on. So my refinement clincheck sort of consists of this. A lot of tooth detailing, which is okay, get my cuspid back down into position. And now I change my anchorage. So my anchorage is on the bicuspids in the first quadrant to intrude the first and the second molar, continue to level uh, my occlusal plane. And on the left, I already set myself up for an uprighting spring like I just showed you. Um, and nowadays, if you ever need to utilize this with a Pontic, a lot of the times it's nice not to have a Pontic, but if you ever need one, just make sure that your Pontic buckle lingually is narrower, so that way you have space for the arch wire to sort of fit in there. And in the upper arch, I'm now developing the posterior of the maxilla uh, and utilizing the anterior as my anchorage to continue to develop this and resolve uh, the entire crossbite. Um, so this is sort of my second aspect. What can I do now? You know, how do I get closer to where I need to be? And that's it. So you can see I'm just utilizing aligners. Uh, everything's tracking nicely. I place an uprighting spring so I can get the uh, mesial root tip on that lower left molar. And we're progressing. Uh, everything's coming along nicely. Tooth is uprighting. Uh, my cuspid, again, didn't behave very nicely, and it's not tracking terribly well, but it's getting better. We're certainly getting an intrusion in the first quadrant. Uh, so my occlusal arches are leveling, and you can see all the arch development in the maxillary arch. Now it's starting to look really, really nice. So this is uh, the radiograph to show you that you can upright those molars, and this is very consistent. You'll see this over and over and over again. And this is where I got to at the end of my aligner. So I got good alignment on top, good alignment on the bottom. I'm still not happy with the rotation on my upper right cuspid. Uh, but everything else looks pretty great. So now the question becomes, can we even do better? And that's where we get into things like TADS. So I am very new to TADS, and I certainly don't have tons of experience with it, but I break down TADS into sort of three categories. So this is a case of Dr. Drew Ferris, a colleague and a friend, who sort of showed me, hey, you can use TADS totally independently of aligners. So here's an impacted cuspid where the ballista spring is purely utilized for the extrusion of the impacted cuspid while the aligners are doing everything else. You can also use TADS directly where you're hanging elastics off the aligners and across aligners, or off the TADS and across the aligners to help things with like closing anterior open bite um, where uh, the uh, TADS are used to directly um, applying force by elastic. What I'm dabbling with and trying is to use TADS indirectly in conjoining uh, with aligners 
because again, I have a lot of pre prosthetic patients, so I'm trying to limit and uh, cut down on the number of these segmental arch wires I've had. And this is my sort of first crack at it. So I ordered yet another ClinCheck because now we wanted to see what we can do with the edentulous site in the second quadrant because it's not big enough for a, a full uh, tooth. It's too small to, uh, uh, we don't really want to place a full size one. So we wanted to see can we design a ClinCheck to basically protract the teeth and close the space. But you will notice that the cuspid and the bicuspid aren't moving at all. So I have sort of absolute anchorage here. And this is just utilizing uh, a CAD, as I will show you in a second, that is splinted to the uh, second bicuspid, or sorry, the first bicuspid. So the TAD provides the anchor, it's laced to the bicuspid, and then the aligner is locked in, so in hopes of getting this uprighted. This is sort of what it looks like. And again, I'm not terribly experienced with TADs, but that's my early stabs at it. Uh, everything else in the, the aligner will hopefully do. Now, again, the bone here is not favorable. You have a big bony defect. Uh, you know, perhaps we could utilize twin attachments here or maybe even propel uh, to help us upright it. I'm about halfway through this, so I don't have the final slide. Uh, but I can show you this is sort of the progress. If you look at the maxillary uh, uh, photo, uh, it's pretty much closed the space. The root is still lagging behind, and my aligner is bending a lot. So I get the feeling I am going to have to do some sort of a segmental mechanic here, uh, but certainly this is a work in progress, um, and uh, it looks like it has a, a pretty good future ahead of it. So to me, a lot of people talk about golf analogies, but I'll tell you, to me, these complex cases end up being a little bit like parallel parking your car. Um, and the reason why I say that is all of us know how to parallel park our cars, and it looks something like this. We first ride up and do one part of it. Then we painstakingly try to do another part of it. And it's not very sexy. And it's not very exciting. But if you do it systematically, bit by bit by bit, you know you can get to your final destination where you need to be. You just have to take the appropriate steps. And if you do that systematically, you will be successful. And it's the same thing in these complex cases. Break them down to something that's simpler and utilize the different steps to get you to the final goal. I think that's a very reasonable way of approaching it. Now, I hope long term I'll be able to parallel my uh, car a little bit better, and I'll show you how, but I'm not there yet. Hopefully, this is the future. which would be a ton of fun, uh, but I don't think I'm quite ready to do that with all my ClinChecks and all my complex cases just yet. <laughs> so I want to leave you with these sort of five components of how to look at your complex cases. I want you to concentrate on the fact that complex cases are just interconnected through a lot of simpler parts, and if you just keep focusing on the simpler parts and and utilizing uh, your knowledge to deal with systematically one at a time, uh, you can be very successful at uh, using aligners uh, for some of these more challenging orthodontic cases. I want to thank you for spending this Friday of a long weekend with me. Uh, our slogan at my practice now is uh, we are passionate about your smile. 
but certainly when I uh, do these presentations and share some of these insights with you, I also want you to know that I'm very passionate about Invisalign. Uh, if you need to reach me for specific questions about this presentation, you can do so directly. Uh, if you don't get an opportunity during this presentation, here's my uh, uh, office uh, email address. Uh, or you can also reach me through uh, the OrthoCoach uh, uh, services. Uh, we're going to come to a conclusion now. Uh, this is basically the information that you need in order to retrieve your continuing education uh, certification. Uh, and I will now sign off. Thank you, Dr. Ivashuk. A couple of quick reminders. Please go to the link that's on your screen right now to take your survey and get your CD certificate. One week from today, this entire program will be archived at the Education tab on your Invisalign Doctor site. I want to thank Dr. Ivashuk again for a great presentation and for all of you taking time out on your Friday to join us. We look forward to seeing you on another Ask the Expert webinar. Thanks very much.